Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Hello, welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. After spending Thanksgiving week away from Washington, Congress is back and the sprint is on to finish up their lame duck session between now and the end of the year. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. The House is scheduled to take up about 30 non-controversial bills this week under suspension of the rules, the process that this podcast is named for, and which requires a two-thirds majority for passage. Twelve of those bills would name various post offices around the country, one which would actually be for Jimmy Hendricks in Washington state, about a mile from his burial place and childhood home. Other bills on the docket this week include clearing the Coast Guard reauthorization that we talked about in last week's episode, and a slew of smaller bills from the Committees on Foreign Affairs, Oversight and Government Reform, and Energy and Commerce. Subscribers can find full coverage of all those measures on BGov. Later in the show, we'll break down the federal flood insurance program and bills to reauthorize it. We start this week, however, with the Democrats' leadership elections, which are scheduled for Wednesday. The vote to select the party's leaders in the new Congress will take place behind closed doors, and the run-up has been a bit more contentious than you might have expected after an election cycle in which the party took the House majority. Returning to the show now to give us the lowdown is BGov congressional reporter Catherine Scott. Welcome back. Hello, hello. We had you on the podcast just after the election, and our assumption at the time was that Nancy Pelosi would cruise to the speakership, but that doesn't seem to have been the case. (laughs) Uh, Definitely not, no. (laughs) It looks like Pelosi's running into a numbers problem. Not in caucus, where I think it'll be easy for her to to win the in-caucus vote, but on the floor, she can't stand to lose more than, I believe, 15 votes. And currently, there have been 16 Democrats who came out saying, at least 16, saying they wouldn't vote for her on the floor. And the difference is to be the party's nominee, you just need a majority of Democrats, but to become speaker, you need a majority of everyone mm-hmm. voting. 218. Mm-hmm. So despite some opposition, there isn't actually a challenger at the moment. What's going on there? So Marsha Fudge, the former head of the Congressional Black Caucus, launched a brief uh, bid to become speaker. It died after it came out that she had written a letter of recommendation for a domestic abuser who recently killed his wife. So she struck a deal with Pelosi to chair a subcommittee in return for supporting Pelosi for speaker and withdrawing her bid. It's kind of rare to see this kind of opposition to existing leadership when a party has a a successful election cycle retaking the majority. What's driving the opposition? Um, I think there's a deep reaction against business as usual in Washington. So you see all these first-time candidates. Some of them are women, some of them are people of color, but the majority of them have never been in politics before. They're new to it. And so I think that with this sort of wave of fresh faces, there is a reluctance to keep the same people at the top of the totem pole. Even if there's no challenger to Pelosi at the end of the day, there's been a lot of jockeying further down the ballot since there are several leadership positions that have to be filled. Yeah, I think these are really proxy races for who's going to succeed her. She's signaled that she wants to be a transitional leader. What that looks like, we don't know yet, whether she's going to do a full two years for the next Congress or give up the speakership after one year. That remains to be seen. But these are the people, the people who are running for these down ballot races are the ones that are going to be in the best position to run or maybe even challenge her down the road. So let's let's talk about some of those down ballot positions. It looked like there would be a contested race between Ben Ray Lujan and David Cicilline for assistant Democratic leader, but Pelosi actually resolved that conflict by creating 
creating a new post. Mm -hmm. what, what happened there? Yeah, I actually have a story coming out later this week about that. But basically, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is going to be the largest values-based caucus in this Congress, met with Pelosi last or two weeks ago and struck a deal with her. So they got a bunch of seats on, on important committees, and they also got a new leadership position created just for them. And David Cicilline is a vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Right after Pelosi announced that she was creating this bid, he announced that he was running for it. So far, he's the only person running. So it's sort of an additional seat at the table to reassure progressives and win their votes leading up to this election. The race for the Democratic caucus chair where Barbara Lee and Hakeem Jeffries are competing is still contested. Is that right? Yeah, they're both still in the race. It's sort of this bid between Barbara Lee, who's sort of the consummate progressive against Hakeem Jeffries, who's a little more centrist. You know, his work across the aisle with Doug Collins on a on a criminal justice reform bill really proved that he's a little more possibly a little more pragmatic. But either way, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus is saying that this is a win for them no matter what, because it's an additional member to represent them in leadership. There's been a lot of jostling down at the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the, the DCCC. They have, uh, I think, four candidates running for, for the top spot there. Mm -hmm. uh, how's that race shaking out? Sure. So Sherry Bustos, who was recently part of the Democratic Policy and Coordinating Committee, she just jumped into that race from previously running as Assistant Democratic Leader. She's seen as a really strong candidate, and I would say she's probably the front runner. She's gotten a lot of credit for supporting, recruiting and supporting moderates who won big in the Midwest in, in November. And so she's running against Susan Del Bene and Denny Heck right now. They all have slightly different pitches, but I think that Denny Heck is a little more moderate, Susan Del Bene a little more progressive. But Sherry Bustos is sort of pitching herself as the sort of Obama to Trump whisperer. She understands those votes and that would position them really well to protect and keep the seats that they just won for 2020. So bigger picture, what's going on ideologically in a lot of these races, it seems like the progressive caucus or the progressive wing of the party is the you know larger faction and the more centrist Democrats are a little bit of the opposition. Uh, and that seems a little bit different than what we saw with the Republicans where you had the Freedom Caucus, which was more to the right than the majority of sort of the centrist Republicans in the House. Is that that sort of seems like a different dynamic? I think it definitely is. You see, even from the beginning, there's been a lot of speculation that the Congressional Progressive Caucus is going to move left and start trying to trip up leadership in the way that House, the House Freedom Caucus did. But already, that's just not true. They're, they're striking a very cooperative tone. You know, they had a great, a positive meeting with Pelosi. They won concessions. They're working together at this stage, and that could change down the road. But I think that if, if you're expecting that same sort of splinter group to cause bills to fail on the floor and put in motions to discharge the Speaker, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Well, thanks for updating us, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much. If you're not already following her on Twitter, you're missing out. She's at Catherine B. Scott and has one of the better feeds among Hill reporters. We will be right back to talk flood insurance. On Friday of this week, November 30th, unless Congress acts, the National Flood Insurance Program will expire. This is the FEMA program that backstops insurance coverage for homes in flood-prone areas. You might have heard about it last year on John Oliver's HBO program, and this week we've got legislative analyst Michael Smallberg here to look at the program from a more legislative angle. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. 
It feels like we've been talking about flood insurance for a while, and in fact, since 2012, when the last long-term reauthorization expired, it's been the subject of seven shorter extensions. Can you give us some background on the program? So it has been around for a while. It was actually created 50 years ago, recognizing that floods often cause extensive damages, but that many private insurers do not cover flood uh, as part of their policies. So the main goals of this program are, number one, for the government to step in and provide flood insurance, but also, number two, Two, for, to require communities to adopt stricter building codes and other floodplain management practices to prevent some of those damages on the front end. So the basic way this works is that FEMA, which runs this flood insurance program, pays an allowance to private insurance companies to sell and service those policies. But FEMA, the government, is ultimately responsible for paying claims when there are damages. And right now, there are more than 22,000 communities across the country that participate in this program. There are more than 5 million policies that provide $1.3 trillion in coverage. So this is a really important program. So what happens if the authorization lapses? So there are two main things that happen if the authorization lapses. One is that FEMA cannot issue new or or renew some of the existing policies. So this is actually a really big deal for the real estate and mortgage industries because some property owners in the highest risk flood areas are required to have flood insurance in order to get a mortgage. So this is often a really big deal for those folks who are trying to to finalize home sales, which might be frozen uh, if this program lapses. The way it works right now is FEMA can borrow money from the Treasury Department if it doesn't collect enough revenue and premiums to pay out those claims. So it can borrow as much as about $30 billion. It's currently about $20 billion in debt. If that authorization lapses, the total debt limit will drop all the way down to $1 billion. So FEMA basically won't be able to borrow more money if there are a lot of claims after some of the recent hurricanes or future hurricanes. It sounds like the most likely outcome this week is not a, a, a bill that has major changes. There are a few of those floating around in Congress, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. But it sounds like a short-term patch might be the most likely outcome this week. Yeah, uh, it was. this was conspicuously absent from the schedule this week was anything dealing with flood insurance. Bloomberg Environment's David Schultz reported this morning that it looks like the prospects are dimming on a broader overhaul. So we probably will see another short-term patch. The program may lapse if Congress doesn't do anything this week, but we will probably see something attached to a must-pass year-end spending package, maybe extending this program for another four months or six months into the next Congress. So last year, the House passed a flood insurance overhaul bill with support from some Democrats, and there are a few bipartisan proposals over in the Senate. What would some of those bills do to the program? So the House's bill would reauthorize the program through fiscal 2022, um, but probably the most controversial provision in, in that bill is that it would cut off coverage or phase out some of the, the subsidies that FEMA provides for properties that are flooded over and over again and end up collecting huge payouts. Even much more than they're actually... Much more than they're actually worth, which is something John Oliver uh, highlighted on his segment. So this is something that obviously is very controversial for lawmakers that are from coastal areas. John Kennedy, a right-handed Republican from Louisiana, said this looked like a bill that he wrote with his left hand. So he certainly uh, is among the the lawmakers that are trying to block this from going through. But some of the other provisions in these bills um, where there is a little bit more agreement, for example, would make it easier for private insurers to come in and sell their own policies outside of the government's program. But then there are also provisions that would help make this more affordable, provide some assistance to lower income households to help them get flood insurance. This is the basic push and pull that we've often seen with these bills. Some lawmakers want to make flood insurance more accessible, more affordable. They recognize the huge damages that occur when there's flooding. On the other hand, you have, you know, for example, fiscal conservatives from more landlocked regions who say that this program is not financially sustainable. And in some cases, you're actually incentivizing people to buy really risky properties in areas that are almost certainly going to get flooded. Uh, and this is this was highlighted even just last on Black Friday, a huge report came out 
about looking at the effects of climate change and the likelihood of extreme flooding and sea levels rising even outside of hurricanes. So this is the basic tension that we've seen in this program all along and has been one of the major stumbling blocks to a longer term reauthorization. Democrat Maxine Waters from California is taking over the chairmanship of the Financial Services Committee, the committee with jurisdiction over this program. Do we know where, where she might be heading? We know Congressman Henserling, who had the chairmanship, was among the fiscal hawks who wanted to see spending reduced on the program. Where, where does Congresswoman Waters stand? In the past, Waters has supported provisions that would keep this program affordable. That's one of the most important elements to her. So if in the next Congress, we'll almost certainly see her try to come in and put her own fingerprint on, on a reauthorization measure. She would probably uh, oppose any proposal that would phase out some of those discounted rates or, or make other changes that would, that would make it harder for people to get insurance to begin with. Thank you, Michael. BGov subscribers can find more news and analysis on the National Flood Insurance Program, including an on-point explainer on, on the program and the various bills we discussed on BGov.com. That's it for this week. We'll be back with another episode of Suspending the Rules next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com. <laughs>